Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, I'm Adam Smith. I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. I'm once again joined by a new panel today of dementia researchers to discuss day four of the Alzheimer's Association International Virtual Conference. We're gonna be discussing some of the big news from the day and our personal highlights, as we know many of you haven't managed to attend over the last couple of days because you're back in the labs and back at work. So we, we hope this podcast will help direct you to some of the great content that's out there. So I'm delighted to welcome back three people you'll know from previous episodes. We have Dr. Rena McArdle from Newcastle University. Hi, Rena. Hi, everyone. Uh, we have Dr. Byron Kreese from the University of Exeter. Hello, Byron. Hello. And we have Esther Vizerki. Hello. That's completely pronounced wrong, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that isn't even how you just told me to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> Esther is with us again as well. Uh, Rena, we haven't seen you. Is it last year's AAIC since you were last with us? Yeah, it is. Nice so podcast. It's a whole year since yeah, we really must do something more. I, I'd love to do a podcast on your work on gate. Yeah. Um, and I, I see that there are, there are, you're not the only one at the moment, are you? I've seen there's quite a few posters and talks on gate this year. There was a, there was a few this year, uh, probably a bit less than actually last year, but there was a few and there was a lot of attendees who were very interested in gate as well, which is good to hear. It is. It is. And um, Byron, um, so much of what's been presented this year is is from Exeter. You, it must be a good place to be. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I'm I'm having a lot of fun there, enjoying my time, and there's a good um, good bunch of people to work with, a good dementia research community for sure. Fantastic. Well, it's great to see so much coming out of Exeter and the UK, particularly. And Esther, it's not quite so long since we saw you last, uh, and and of course, I should say that you're Dutch. So I feel like we needed a token Dutch person to make up for the fact that we're not in the Netherlands this year. Would you have, were you planning to attend had this not been virtual? Um, I, I might have missed it. No, I, I fear I would have had to, um, to miss it due to work commitments, but yeah. But I think it, that's, you're, it's fantastic, but I think so many people that otherwise wouldn't have been able to go due to work or because of the costs were quite prohibitive have been able to attend. Uh, and your first AIC as well, Esther. Indeed, yeah, yeah, and and yeah, because of that, uh, that it being virtual, it has been a bit more accessible. Uh, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. It's nice to um, to have a peek. Well, thank you all for uh, coming and joining us today. Uh, let do you know what today's content, uh, today's sessions were public health, dementia care, psychosocial factors, and dementia care practice. That's quite a lot in to take into one day um, but that was the focus for day four so before I come to each of you to discuss your own highlights um, perhaps we can talk about uh, a couple of the main plenaries from the day. Um, Byron can I come to you first did you manage to attend the ethics and dementia plenary? I did yeah yeah I got got to most of it anyways. Do you want to what did you see? Um so it was all around um, broadly the ethics of disclosing um, biomarker uh, 
information to um, uh, I think either general public or research participants even. Um, and uh, I watched three talks, one from um, Scott Roberts in Michigan, one from uh, Ada Rostam Zeda in Cologne, and one from Jennifer Lingler in Pittsburgh. Um, and I thought probably the most, I guess, interesting theme uh, to come out of that uh, was that actually you can disclosure of either, in this case, it was either APOE or, or, or pet, pet amyloid status um, actually doesn't really have much of an impact on people. So um, people can uh, um, sort of like can deal with it, can handle the information. It's not, it, it doesn't kind of adversely affect their well-being or psychological um, status in any kind of major way. Um, I think there are uh, kind of um, important implications probably for uh, whether the disclosure of APOE status affects somebody's performance on a memory test or cognitive test. I think there's some work going on in that space. That's quite interesting for clinical trials, I think. So you could recruit based on APOE, APOE4 status, and then obviously in a clinical trial, you're going to be um, undertaking cognitive tests on people. And does that, the fact that someone's in the trial and the fact they know they're APOE positive and therefore have an increased risk for Alzheimer's disease, um, does it affect their performance on testing? Well, that was quite an interesting point. But the, the broader point about the impact on people, I thought was, was um, important, uh, uh, an important takeaway point for me, yeah, and for the, for the research we're doing. It's not a session I got to, but did anybody, just out of interest, did anybody from Gene Match, were there any of those presentations from the Gene Match service in the US? Um, no, what's that? I'm not familiar with that. Uh, so GeneMatch is an extension of the Alzheimer's Prevention Registry where they they send testing kits through the post. They know the results, but they never disclose it to people, even when they randomize people to approach them on their APOE status. Um, and I have to say, obviously, some of the listeners will know that I've got some involvement in joint dementia research in the UK and things like knowing the APOE status of a of part of our cohort could be incredibly valuable because so many of the studies that are coming through are looking for people of a certain age with one risk factor and a risk factor being APOE. If mm. we knew the APOE status of people, it would massively reduce the number of people we had to screen for no reason. And one of the really annoying things is because so many of the trials don't share data with each other, it's quite feasible that somebody might have somebody who's motivated to participate in a trial might come in and have their APOE status tested two, three times mm. in a year because, um, because they never get enrolled into the study, but then they enroll in, you know, they try to enroll in the next study. They test APOE as well and find it's negative, never disclose. Yeah. And that person just keeps waste, you know, yeah. uh, having their time wasted by so, trying to enroll in studies. Who can get into. Yeah. I think that's a, I, I, I'm, I don't recall that coming up, but I suppose when you're talking about ethics of disclosure, there's maybe two points then. There's the ethics of, the, of managing, of disclosing the information in a responsible way, but actually also the ethics of you're disclosing it so that somebody doesn't go wasting their time getting tested repeatedly and wasting resources and so on. So yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I, it links up actually to a, there's a poster from Glasgow Memory uh, clinic and I forget the 
and apologies, but I forget the author. It was Glasgow Memory Clinic. Look, I'm going through the process, the, the a flow chart of, of, of screening for a trial and then actually the number of people recruited into that trial based on their APOE status. And it was sort of 3,600 down to about 64. So the, the, uh, there's a huge drop-off rate in people needed to screen in order to get down to that. And you wonder if, yeah, maybe if more information was available, that wouldn't happen. Uh, yeah, completely. I, in fact, I'm sure we can guess, was that something like the generations trial or the tomorrow or it, one of... It was generation, I think. Was generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, the number of people you have to screen on those to, to get the numbers is, is massive. And it, I think that's one of the things with joint dementia research, we try to get, encourage um, trial sites to share back uh, screen fail data so that it improves the data set of the person so that we don't over approach people for for trials mm. particularly things like mmse score if if somebody self-reports as having an mmse of 25 and they're getting approached for mci trials but actually when you brought them in they're testing more like 20 and that information never finds its way back into the the data pool people with mci are in such high demand for studies that they're you know they they're hot property they're approached lots to participate in trials and and we just you know drag people back into sites no for no reason mm. thank you uh thanks byron uh that's fascinating and i'm going to come to you next uh rena that you the racial disparities session with lisa barnes was talked about a lot online yesterday uh could you give us a summary of that session yeah, it was really interesting. Uh, Lisa Barnes is kind of talking about racial disparities between African-Americans and white people. And she was talking about how African-Americans are twice as likely to develop dementia, but they're less likely to get a diagnosis or be represented in clinical trials, which I think is something that was talked about a bit last year as well, and is, is steadily getting more into the narrative of research that we really aren't including minority groups into clinical trials. Um, but she also mentioned that there didn't seem to be any difference in the rates of their actual cognitive decline in comparison to um, the white population, but they seem to start at a lower, a lower set on the cognitive test. So they're getting lower scores going into any kind of um, studies, which could be influenced by factors affected by race, such as the socioeconomic status or the literacy, um, and also the fact that they're less likely to get a diagnosis at those early stages. So it's kind of hard to compare them, I think. But it was interesting that they didn't really find any particular differences. There was a few differences in pathology. So they found that people with dementia um, in African-American communities were more likely to have mixed pathology. But she also mentioned that actually they go to memory clinics for other problems than memory problems. And that might be why we're just seeing a more representative group of people who might have also got hypertension or other kind of factors. Um, and then she went on to talk about how just the experiences of discrimination in their youth was actually impacting their health and the presentation of their cognition. So for example, they found um, using fMRI studies that there was less functional connectivity in places that were related to trust in people with dementia from African-American descent. And that this seemed to be linked to their experiences of discrimination in schools, particularly if they'd grown up in the South in America. And I just thought that was a really interesting kind of idea that I'd never thought of. And it also, got mentioned then later on in an LGBTQ session as well, that perhaps that was something that would feed into LGBTQ experiences as well, that they felt more discrimination in their youth and that might be affecting their later cognitive status. So it was really interesting. It was. D does anybody else have anything to add to that? I made that link as well with the, um, 
it's something that you it, it was a bit cop-smacking sort of thing. You, 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 so she talked like like we just said about the integrated uh, the schools. So you, you'd think, I think as maybe as a policymaker, especially at the time, you think, oh, that's a great thing. But actually now it turns out it has some sort of adverse effect later down the line. And who could have thought that? And, and yeah, that's just really interesting to see also for future policies, I guess, uh, that you, you're thinking you're doing the right, you make the right decision on one level, but on another level, it might actually go the other way. Um, yeah, it just uh, it, it just shows the complexity, and and also you're right. I picked up as well about the LGBTQ uh, population. My goodness! And if you have a double, that's uh, that's that's really it gets really complex that way. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think um, a podcast panelist from NAIC, I, I think it might have been in 2018, Nika Sablova, um, who's now at Columbia as well. She also had a poster yesterday looking at um, about African-American populations and education, which was very interesting. So please go go have a look at that. It was, um, she's N-I-K-A-S-E-B-L-O-V-A, Nika Sablova, and that's under the public health sections in the posters. Um, actually, do you know what? I, I don't know whether that's an interesting segue, because I was going to talk later about, about one of the big sessions yesterday, which was, was the the Lancet report looking at life, modifiable lifestyle risk factors. And of course, so for anybody who's not picked up on this before, um, the Lancet report brought together 28 world leading experts. Uh, it published, is it a year or two ago now, the first time? Um, wasn't it? 17, I think. Yeah. Wow, yeah, so a few years ago now. And they reported that there was a 40% potential risk reduction uh, if you employed the right prevention strategies. And after analyzing global best practice, they've increased um, the factors from nine to 12 with three new ones added. And the new ones, I'm looking at my notes, are, are excessive alcohol intake, head injury in midlife, air pollution in later life, but that added to um, the greatest proportion came from less education in early life, hearing loss in midlife and smoking in later life. So it's back, sorry, the point I was trying to make was the education in early life uh, point, which can contribute in itself for 7%. Um, so it's no surprises that if you combine that with the with the problems experienced around race in those education, that that's um, amplified that uh, issue. And I wonder if you can even link that back to the um, what was discussed in the ethics uh, uh, session, uh, which was raised by uh, Jetsen van der Schaar. I can pronounce that. It's a super Dutch name. She had a massive windmill. Because what I understood from it, at least, is that once uh, she found, I think, in her study, if I understood correctly, that once people have been told that they might be a bit more, or at least that they have the gene, um, they, they have a more desire to actually control the future. Uh, and and they 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 seem to have some of them started to make a considerable change in their life. Even, uh, of course, that the gene that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to develop it. Mm. Um, but yeah, so that that's interesting to see then whether by telling people, then if you say what the Lancet saying that of course things in life can impact your chances, but then it's nearly a full circle. If that makes sense, 
because by testing you're telling people change their way of life and if in that way you actually say yeah but that might actually then improve your chance of not developing it it, it, it yeah you get my drift and it, it might be yeah. a good thing so, on the other hand apparently some people got a bit reckless as well because if so if it's not uh, explained properly enough that it's not a give this is not your uh, your future telling per se mm. people also might start being a bit reckless more if or that they're saying okay sod it i'll give up <laughs> yeah i think scott roberts's talk i think had the same finding that people um like disclosure of apoe prompted behavior change i the thing I wonder about the other factors, though, is that in terms of prompting behavior changes, that there things like like many lifestyle factors are risk factors for other yeah. cancers and heart disease, other stroke and so on. And do people prompt their behavior change? I don't know. Like it's real, like it's a real challenge, isn't it? Like the 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 in individual level behavior change required to sort of mitigate risk I, for dementia. I, I don't know if it'd be any different for than for cancer or for stroke or for or for heart disease um, or diabetes. I think in that session they really tried to amplify like how policy level interventions is what's needed as opposed to putting the onus on the individual. So uh, like smoking always comes up obviously is a big one and that was like how can we put a policy in that would actually get people to stop smoking which would help like many different types of diseases and so on. so I think they were trying to take the onus a little bit less off the individual prevention yeah. factors. Well, I suppose smoking, they have done that, haven't they? It's, you know, yeah, they put the messages on the packets, but oh, then okay. they just make it really hard to buy and they make it really hard to do. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then, so it's less, you know, it's not, they don't leave it up to the individual. It's massive policy changes. And you can, the recent stuff around in the UK around um, advertising certain foods, that's been going on in the last couple the of weeks. Sugar tax as um, well, isn't it? The sugar tax. Yeah. A bit yeah. Exactly. Tax. Yeah. Yeah. A, I mean, a, they... a bit of a more scary uh, comment from Scott Roberts. I found um, is is his comment about insurance change, because now, of course, if mm. you if you admit to smoking and drinking, the, you admit to it all because you're having a quite a bit of a you're having probably a lot of fun, but a bit of a bad lifestyle. Mm. Your insurance your insurance rocks up. So I wonder also with testing if if that got in the hands of insurers. Would that yeah. ultimately mean your insurance is going to go up? And is it fair if, if it was that, if that was the case? Well, I'm going to cheat slightly and quote some of um, Clive Ballard's fantastic tweets. So he highlighted yesterday that um, we know that 40% of dementia risk could be pre- uh, prevented or delayed. Um, and that... Um, 12 of the risk factors accounted for 35% of dementia, but that rises to 56% in Latin America. And there were some really obvious things in here, like making sure, uh, found that people wearing hearing aids uh, reduce the risk of cognitive decline in people with hearing loss, for example. I mean, you would hope that somebody in government somewhere is looking at this Lancet report, somebody in public health and saying, let's, let's translate this into some policy and practice. And uh, for anybody who's not listened to it yet, if you go back a couple of episodes, we had a podcast with um, my boss, Professor Martin Rosser, looking at his work on the cognitive footprint and this idea that uh, government policies and various other things can be scored in terms of cognition to give them a positive or negative score with and you'd hope that many policies and other things like combinations of drugs can have a positive cognitive 
score are negative that that you can add all this up to try and create positive cognition uh, through policies and in society um, so that's worth a look um would sorry uh, was there anything to add on the on the racial disparities talk rena oh uh no did we not cover that I, I sorry i i realized we jumped off to the lancet report oh, okay anything else to talk about on the lancet report and uh, we should give proper credit of course to jill livingston as well uh from ucl which is where i work um for a lot of the work and clive ballard and many of the others we'd i think we'd all recommend that you go back and look at that session which i think was one of the live ones so that'll be available later today being the 31st of july yeah, maybe just add one thing. I suppose we were talking a lot about the prevention aspect of dementia. I mean, there was um, Gear Selbeck, uh, his talk, he's at University of Oslo, uh, which is more about um, the kind of management and care of people with dementia. So including treatments for the disease itself, but also um, various symptoms of the disease. So including behavioral and psychological changes, um, nursing home care and so on. Um, so his particular point was that there's on the side of behavioral and psychological symptoms, there's kind of no, no real effective um, drug treatments. And there hasn't been since the last report in 2017. But um, the good news is there have been a number of big studies looking at non-pharmacological interventions, particularly for people in nursing homes that seem to work really well for agitation, depression in particular. So non-pharmacological is going to be things like um, uh, enhanced social interaction it's simple stuff as simple as that like talking to people more <laughs> um, uh, and uh, reminiscence and um, uh, a bit of light exercise type things and, and as well as staff care home staff management things I think that came through as a theme in much of yesterday actually which was uh, highlighting the importance that care wasn't just a case of caring for people if you got the care right it could also delay some of the delay and mitigate some of the symptoms that we know are associated with dementia you know like um i'm going to say things like we'll talk about in a while the keto diet suggested if you got diet right it might delay some of the issues some of these other things we've been talking about now so just emphasizing the importance of care again not just to make somebody comfortable but to to also potentially give them a better quality of life through delaying the progress of the disease does that sound right <laughs> I'm going to go around the table now and ask people just to talk to what were their favourite sessions of the day. Um, Esther, let's come to you first. I liked um, the talk of David Hoffman, the key considerations for dementia-capable uh, uh, preparedness plans. Um, but I also had um, had some fun with uh, some of the posters, if I may uh, may I touch on that. I, I picked out three. Um, one was the first one was the uh, was from the faculty of medicine the chinese university of hong kong uh, kelvin soy if i pronounce it right um, and that was called the companion robot for elderly residents with dementia a cognitive behavioral analysis for neuropsychiatric symptoms um, obviously it's a small poster so um, that that was just talking about cares more than just giving care but actually talking to people so what they're trying to do there is um, they developed robots um, to, to talk uh, or actually interact with people. But it was ultimately a very small study and I did interact with the poster and I saw a few other people did as well, uh, asking actually how the robot interacted. Um, and somebody was also, like I said, was intrigued to find that out. Um, so that would be interesting to, to follow that a bit more and to see 
um, how that was done. There was actually no answer back to that, which uh, was a shame. Um, but uh, another one was, um, it was from actually the, the, the Canadian Alzheimer's Society, um, uh, 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 Riley Malvern, and that was called the Out of the Shadows addressing resident to resident aggression in long-term care. Um, they're developing an uh, evidence-based booklet on that to help carers and family members. Um, and they're actually looking for a suggestion to the terminology of resident to resident aggression. And they're looking for something more person-centered and that sounds a little bit more respectful. Um, so actually I, I, I responded to that post and I got a very nice reply back. Um, and I wondered if, if whether they're actually also considering aftercare uh, with residents, uh, because when when there's an altercation between two people, um, the people might be quite high on adrenaline, because if you just had a fight, you know, uh, that you might either feel very vulnerable if, or if you're the aggressor, you're super high. And then, you know, it's up to the care staff that they have to separate people. But then the complexity is that though you have separated two people, one might be super high, uh, the other one might be feel very uh, sad. The one who's necessarily, uh, the aggressor might not necessarily also, might also equally be the victim because the other one might have sort of said something that caused the whole conflict and both may do even remember. So I think the work they're gonna be doing is, is, is very, very good actually. I, I, I look forward to that uh, booklet in the end. Um, and then there was one, um, by uh, Barbara uh, Davim um, from the University of uh, the Sao Paulo in Brazil. Um, and that was about the importance of personal possessions in the construction of institutional ambience for elderly with Alzheimer's disease. And they, they done a literature review on that. Um, and I think <laughs> it's it, a part of me, that poster made me a little bit uh, sad in 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 a way in in the sense that the, the outcome was that uh, it reinforces the sense of belonging if you bring along p personal possessions to a new home. Well, you know that that in a way is of course for every human on the planet. If if you move house, um, if you didn't, there's there's little people who do all the total mindfulness and say I leave all my old stuff at home. I'm going to start afresh. Who, who would do that? You know, not many people can have that mental strength. Generally, we bring all our nonsense with us and all our comforts with us. And we feel, we say, ah, now we feel home again in our new place. Um, so wh why, why would we have to actually think about that for people with dementia? Obviously, they're still, you know, they're people. So then I thought, wow, that, that we still have to look into that. Um, I saw a poster on that same subject. I saw a poster yesterday that talked about activities. I mean, obviously this, we know that activities in residential care is something that's talked about a lot. I mean, both for keeping physically active, but also, you know, to, to, uh, to provide uh, something to do. And this talked about the number of residents who used to do day-to-day household activities but then couldn't anymore like they weren't expected to clean their own rooms or to do their own washing up or to to make their own breakfast which were activities that they they took some comfort from these were routines that they built up that they would polish their silver they would make their own mm. bed um, and this uh, particular study had looked at how you might introduce some of those activities and it wasn't just a ploy to reduce the number of staff they needed this was genuinely people wanted to yeah. have 
a cleaning cupboard where they put their vacuum cleaner and their polish because they couldn't access the cleaning stores because they were all locked away somewhere down the cupboard corridor because it wasn't safe to let people have a, you know, a tin of pledge and a duster. Um, I liked that. I can't remember who did it. It was, it was a poster from yesterday. Yeah. That comes, that comes back to a sense of purpose because if you're, if you're uh, busy, then uh, uh, of course, everybody wants to go to a hotel hall inclusive, but uh, it's your sense of purpose in at home, at least that, uh, you know, you get to, you want to do your own stuff. That's nice as holiday. Byron, sorry, you so, had something to yeah, say. Yeah, I think it, I think I completely agree with what you said, Esther, about actually it's kind of a simple expected finding. Um, and the same with you, Adam. Although, was polishing silver one of the examples? What kind of sample would <laughs> they take? Is it like it was, it was, it, it, it was, it really was. And I've seen this sort of video as well. There was a lady that used to, once a month, she would polish the silver and she'd taken her silver with her but it was annoying her that it, it was sitting there getting tarnished because of course oh. the, the, the uh, domestic stuff that came in to help with the room didn't polish yeah. it with the brasso. They would just give it a quick once over with yeah. the rest. That and vac vacuum. That's awesome. You, but there, there's a lot of those sim simple things. The, uh, some of the, uh, like I like to say it because it's Clive's, Clive Ballard's study, the Weld study, it was a social interaction of a couple of minutes a, well, not, 10 minutes a day or something is is helpful and it's like yeah it, it yeah that makes sense because it's helpful yeah. for me right um, yeah. i don't i don't like being sat in lockdown here i can see how horrible la less social interaction is but th actually then they looked over 20 years and there hadn't really been all this knowledge comes about from research but it doesn't it doesn't get implemented into practice necessarily like 20 years ago, the situation was more or less the same. So there's a, there's a gap between and, and uh, research Rita, and practice. Of course, this talks to, because I, I, I did watch your presentation yesterday, <laughs> this talks to exactly your work as well about measuring people's movement using wearable technology and how much physical time they spend upright and doing things is in the same space, isn't it? Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of reasons that people aren't moving about in uh, long term care facilities. So my work that I presented yesterday showed that people with cognitive impairment living in nursing homes are doing very, very, very little activity in comparison to people with dementia in community dwelling settings. Um, they're doing, you know, like maximum 2000 steps a day, which is very little. And our study collects every step after three steps so we're really taking in a lot more than what a fitbit or anything like that would show you so we're taking every step that you might possibly make basically um so they're doing like a lot less activity all of their activity is very much in shorter walking bouts um and it kind of shows that they're really moving around a constrained setting and they're not really getting up or moving about very much which we know is really good for a population that lives in long-term care like even moving a little bit more every day than what they do at their baseline has been shown in studies to be very beneficial for their quality of life and also to help them maintain some of their functional um, status as well but there's a lot of reasons why that doesn't go ahead in those long-term care facilities um, for example the environment of the long-term care facility we've seen and I, I saw a talk on this yesterday as well um, about what environment looks like in those care homes. So when you have a traditional nursing home where it's kind of like warded and people have their own like small little rooms and stuff like that, their general social, um, they're more socially isolated. They're not getting to interact. They're not involved in activities. Whereas if they're in small scale nursing homes that have, say, like a big kitchen in the center that they can come into, 
they're much more likely to be able to chat to people and move around. And there was also um, a look at in the Netherlands, green care farms, where they mix agriculture with care. So you go and live on a farm and you help out on the farm in your, even though you've got dementia, um, like severe stages of dementia. And that's supposed to be really good for the social interaction with each other and for getting involved and going outdoors. So it's kind of like the policies and the environment of the nursing homes and the long-term care that needs to change as opposed to the individual, because they'll be, they'll be asked to sit in the chair so that they don't fall because that will be a, a big problem in a nursing home is if you have a fall, but you're then making them more frail by doing that. So it's quite a hard, hard sell. And it's, do you know what, it's tricky. I, I don't think I'd want to be in a senior position in a care home group or things like that because, because the guidance, you know, does quickly change to reflect latest thinking and research and keeping on top of that when you're a care home manager that's tied down with day-to-day -day work, just trying to keep on top of looking after the people, mm. you know, the residents is, is difficult. And I think the large, I've had some, some, some interaction with the larger care home groups at a senior level. And it's as much as quality of care is clearly important. It is a lot about occupancy rates, um, making it, and particularly, I think a couple of, over the last few years, so many of those larger care home groups were bought up by venture capitalist firms that were quite interested in the, the properties and the land and things like that. I think that's, it's, that's fascinating. It's thing. hard like to get, the right balance between being risk averse and like trying to promote independence within a care facility because obviously you could promote independence but there was for example i'm doing a, a systematic review at the moment on activity in care homes and there's one study that found um people who are who go outside and walk more are the most likely to fall which is obviously a really negative thing to happen in a care mm. home but yet they seem also to be reporting to have like better functional status and quality of life because they're getting to go outside um, and it's trying to balance that, like what's more important, the fact that they could fall and break their hip or the fact that they would like to be have some environmental yeah. stimulation. I suppose the break, the, the fall is just that the statistics are shocking, aren't they? Yeah. It's, if, you, if you break your hip, is it the mortality in six months the or a year? is downward trajectory. Yeah, and, yeah, no wonder they're risk averse, I suppose, you know, I yeah. can appreciate in, that. In Holland, but, they have, um, in Holland, they have developed a uh, airbag for your hip. Oh really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Really? And uh, the moment you hit the floor, it uh, boom, it's it's one off, and then it sends a um, a text message to your carer that you have fallen. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Oh well, is that like the horse, the children that do horse riding, the eventing? They have vests like that, don't they? That protect no, it's their super discreet. If they get thrown. It's super discreet. It will fit in you to your uh, into your clothes. You wouldn't even know you're wearing it. Cool. Well, we yeah. should look at that. Rita, I'm interested to know. Did you do any heat mapping? you know, actual physical mapping to look at the, the, the layout of the care home and then make the hotspots as to where people were spending their time? No, I think that's usually done through infrared sensors. So we just use unobtrusive uh, small wearable technology. So we don't know where they are or what they're doing with no GPS or anything. But there has been uh, one okay. that have done that and has shown like they move within certain paths um, within the care home. And sometimes like if they keep reusing the same paths, that can be an indication of wandering. But I think there's still a lot of work ongoing within that. I did some work on that in the NHS many years ago to look at where staff spent their time, um, how much of it was spent by bedside compared to at the nurse's station or elsewhere around the place, which can can indicate some fascinating behaviours as to what 
work is like. Fantastic. Sorry, Esther, we could, we interrupted you there. Did you have anything else you wanted to to highlight? Um, yeah, there was one uh, which uh, a very interesting one, an on demand, and it was called uh, "Caregiving is Associated with Worse Sleep and Worse Sleep Related Health and Functioning" by Kate uh, Sprecher. Um, that 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 was actually uh, uh, also a bit of a catch twenty two. So she sort of looked into that people. We live with a caregiver. The, the people with dementia may actually just uh, disturb the sleep of the caregiver by, by nighttime wandering, for instance. Um, and then in return, the caregiver sleeps badly um, and therefore starts to dysfunction. And actually, there's a more risk of institutionalization of the care recipient. Um, so it goes in a vicious circle. Um, but it, it also highlights, again, a little bit not rocket science of course that because recently i read something in the harvard uh, uh, business review uh, and they said managers who are sleep deprived don't function they're kind of getting a bit um, that it's dangerous for your organization to have non-sleeping employees basically uh, and, and and everybody knows the example of sleep deprived uh, mothers you know it, uh, you love your darling dearly but it uh, it doesn't help getting through the day if your sleep has been uh, disturbed um, and, and I, can, I guess that links also again to uh, a really good point um, that um, David Hoffman made later. So he said sort of people with dementia are in a comparable uh, situation as in childhood, uh, only their, their legal status is different. So a lot of those issues we're going into are, are a little bit comparable, but of course they have moved on in life. So they're adults. So that's where the ethics gets a little bit tricky. How much can you intervene? Even... Uh, Riona, what you said earlier about walking around, uh, a, a mom that, that lets their, her child run around the playground and let it fall and drop and climb on things, obviously the child's going to hurt themselves, but probably it's better for the child in the long run for their physical abilities, uh, but may hurt terribly. So it's always a bit of a catch finding this balance and that, that, um, that is tricky ethically uh, speaking, but uh, makes it fascinating to solve. <laughs> I saw that Kate Sprecher uh, talk as well from she's from the University of Wisconsin and mm. the reasons why uh, carers were getting worse sleep was either down to being obviously woken up by the person that they were caring for this this vigilance that they felt they needed to be vigilant all the time and that they simply stayed up later and woke up earlier staying up later because you know kind of once you've managed to Put down the person you're caring for to bed that's that becomes your free time that's when you want to kind of sit down and relax and um but then you have to get up early in the morning because you can't leave them lying in in bed in the morning um it, honestly I, I don't think we'd be very surprised by the results i, I think it kind of mm -hmm. confirms what they'd seen before in this rest study and the takeaway of that was strategies are needed to support sleep uh sleep health in carers yeah <laughs> so <laughs> Any ideas, anyone? <laughs> I think that's that's going to be a tricky one. Uh, Esther, I'm going to have to move on. I'm afraid. I think uh, and give everybody else a chance to to come to their talks. I'm uh, Ree. Let's come to you. Let's come to you next. Sure. Um, so I saw quite a few interesting talks and a couple of posters yesterday. Um, one of the talks that I thought was really interesting was in the LGBTQ um, session from Jason Flatt. He's from the University of Nevada and he was talking about prevalence rates of dementia in LGBTQ populations, but also the challenges that are affecting them that 
we're not very good at thinking about in terms of policy when we think about um, dementia care. So he was saying that there was comparable to higher rates of dementia in LGBTQ older adults. Um, however, the problems with this is that they have less likely to have access to a caregiver. They're twice as likely to live alone. Um, they're often scared of going into medical care because they'll have faced stigma and discrimination through medical care. Um, he did mention, I can't remember how many years ago, but he mentioned, you know, that um, trans, being transgender has only more or less recently stopped being a mental health condition in America um, and, and seen as one. So there's obviously a lot of stigma that they're still trying to break through. And some of the things that I thought was really interesting that he mentioned was that we need more data on these kind of populations and we also need to be tailoring care to be more inclusive. And we need to understand that um, not everyone has a biological family that can take care of them. Some of them have families of choice and those families also need to be informed of their medical needs and there needs to be something in place for that. So I thought that was a really interesting session and just highlighted um, again that we're not always that good at um, thinking about minority populations within research and we need to be a little bit better at being inclusive to these populations and um, thought that was really interesting. I also saw a really good poster um, from Oregon by Lindsay Miller, who's part of Jeffrey Kay's lab group. And she was looking at sensor data on couples, um, older adult couples in the home and how they spend their time together because that can be indicative of their well-being and their health. And so she looked at patterns of how much time couples spend together inside and out of the home. And she found, you know, there's patterns of people who spend a lot of time together and people who spend a lot of time apart. And the people who spend a lot of time together was predicted by men having lower cognitive abilities and um, being less active. And that this might be an indicator for their waning independence and increased caregiver strain. And it reminded me of a talk from last year by Neil Thomas, who used to be in that group as well, I think, that indicated um, that the more time that couples spent together in bathrooms was an indication of low functional ability of the person with dementia. So I thought that was a sort of interesting way of looking at patterns. And again, what you said, thinking about where people are actually in the room and how that might indicate daily behavior as well, Adam. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and finally, I also really enjoyed a talk by Shannon Holloway from Rush University. So she was looking at standing activity as recorded by accelerometers. So this is um, in, in my research interest anyway, to have a look at. And she was reporting from the MIND trial. So Rush University have got a lot of sensor data anyway, that's really interesting. Um, and she was looking at standing in particular because basically any activity breaks up sedentary behavior. And that's always good for a person with dementia or for older adults. And she said there has been some uh, findings that standing and cognitive function are related, but there has never been any looking at this in the real world. So she's looked at it in the real world using seven day data and recording how many minutes a person spends standing per day and what that standing activity intensity is. And she's kind of explaining like we do spend a lot of our day standing. For example, if you were chopping something in the kitchen, you would probably be standing to do that. Or if you were just moving around doing your cleaning, that would mostly be recorded as standing and it can break up the day. And she found that standing activity intensity was associated with perceptual speed once she controlled for all of the confounders. So our kind of like information processing, um, which often comes up with other motor activities like gait as well. So that was good for me to hear. And she suggested that we need to think about doing interventions to increase standing behaviors because they interrupt sedentary behaviors and might be more feasible than people doing 
you know, broad scale aerobic activity or walking for a long time if they're not able to do that. So I thought that was a, it was a really nicely presented talk and um, some quite interesting novel findings from Shannon Holloway as well. Yeah. That's it. Well, you can, it makes absolute sense, doesn't it? When you think about it, those kind of standing activities there, are, I mean, we've all got standing desks and things now. Why wouldn't you employ some of those same, uh, same tools in that, in that setting? Mm. Let's come to you next, Byron. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, it's probably an obvious one, but my I really enjoyed the Lancet Commission talks, but we've already spoken about those, so I can... Uh, um, Sorry, did I else. steal your thunder? <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Yeah, that was my only thing. No, I'm um, So I did go to the talk, when I, I ducked out of the ethics one, and then went to, to went to the a talk on the ketogenic diet. Um, and I actually... Uh, it's So I've been working on a big study in Exeter which is kind of a older adults tracking study called Protect and we we do a lot of we take a lot of information about people's diet and lifestyle and it's all kind of in the same areas that these factors highlighted in the Lancet Commission so I kind of went to that because I think people often ask me like what about the keto diet and AD Alzheimer's disease risk and so on so I thought I'd go just primarily not because it's something I researched necessarily but just out of interest um and uh, that was from Suzanne Craft at Wake Forest School of Medicine in the US. Um, and uh, she just presented uh, a few studies showing that uh, maybe there's some um, effect of the keto diet on memory and uh, some biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease. But the studies, study was pretty small. I think, it, I think it was kind of in the tens of people. And then um, I think most other studies in this area have been really small as well. So I'm not sure there's that much we can, we can draw into it. Um, she also uh, highlighted that that particular diet in, in mice reduces Alzheimer's pathology in transgenic mice. But I think a lot of things do in transgenic mice. As far as I understand from my animal research colleagues, it's uh, good to be a mouse with Alzheimer's disease. Um, we can cure everything of, in mice. Yeah, they're going to rule yeah. the world one day, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so I mean, I thought I thought it was I thought it was interesting because it's a huge topic to the general public. I think diet, and I did think it was interesting, however, that diet was left out of the Lancet Commission's. Um, it's not one of the twelve risk factors, so I assume that means that although the evidence might be emerging, it's not yet in a place where you can say that any of these diets actually um, prevent dementia, although they may be healthy, but for a variety of other reasons. Is, is weight one of the risk factors for the BMI? Mm. So I suppose it's you could tie in. Report. It is in the WHO report, but I didn't mm. think it was in this one. I suppose Ooh, weight question. is a mm. diet and exercise kind of combination. I, I went to that mm. uh, key, those, the keto sessions as well. The I love the talk. Did you see the one by Stephen Canane? Uh, uh, benefit trial. No, no, I just caught this one of. So he was great. I would really recommend anybody go back and watch this. So Stephen Canane reported on the benefit trial. He's from Sherbrooke uh, University in Quebec, and they gave people a five milligram sub uh, substitute, uh, not substitute uh, drink. Um, and he had this awesome analogy of, of how the brain runs compared to a hybrid or a traditional car that the brain usually runs, you know, old fashioned cars run on petrol, 
your brain would run on glucose but actually if you were to get a hybrid car if you could run a certain percentage of it um from the ketone um it, it will have a longer effect I'm, I'm butchering this so i would recommend you go see it but what he showed was that once you got mci um the glucose your your brain stopped being very good at running on glucose but it did continue to be good to run on um the ketone generated energy and so swapping diet at that stage their study found that there was improvements in uh, or in executive function, language function, um, and episodic memory, are all using this Boston scale. I, I, I'm not doing this justice. I would suggest you go look at it. The, the analogy he used with the electric car was fantastic. And yeah, I, I was sold on it. I know maybe I'm just easy to persuade, but the images he showed of the brain running on the different fuels um, did suggest that there's something really in that potentially as a way to um, slightly delay uh, the onset of things. Um, yeah, go see it. Uh, Stephen Canane, Sherbrooke. Sorry, Byron, please do carry on. No, that, yeah. Um, and then I, yeah, I, I saw a few posters yesterday. My favorite, favorite poster was a couple of days ago. Um, but yesterday, um, there was uh, three posters on psychosis and Alzheimer's disease. And I, um, I think they're all um, linked in some way to making the case for um, pimavanserin for psychosis in, in, in dementia, because um, I'm not sure they mentioned pimavanserin, but I think that's the subtext, because two of them from, were from Acadia, who's the pharmaceutical company that made that drug, but they, they, they were looking at um, costs associated with Lewy body dementia psychosis um, versus other psychosis and found that psychosis in Lewy body dementias was associated with higher healthcare costs. Um, and then there were um, healthcare practitioners' perceptions of antipsychotic efficacy um, from, sorry, that first one was from Victor Abler at Acadia. And this next one was from Jenny Chen at Acadia as well. Um, so that's just showing that in kind of real world setting, healthcare practitioners uh, associate sort of, um, or report that they're, atypical antipsychotics um, usually people don't get much better or they don't work very well basically um, but again I suppose that's slightly setting the scene for their new drug um, but it's it's kind of it, it reports kind of what we already know and that a lot of these drugs are used but they're not really much good in general so there's kind of that um, that kind of gap at the moment where there's there are some people that evidently need some kind of treatment for psychosis but there's nothing available except these older antipsychotic drugs um and then there was just another another poster about uh the need to kind of um develop educational tools for dementia related psychosis so that um uh it's better recognized by uh healthcare practitioners and um uh, that was thomas finnegan at medscape education but is uh done in collaboration i think with Jeffrey Cummings as well, uh, and that was developing a, a tool for, for educational, an educational tool for practitioners so that they can um, learn more about psychosis, uh, learn more about the treatment options available, what works, what doesn't work, what are the dangers and so on. So that was, uh, it's kind of, it, it, I thought those three were just kind of interesting. They, they must be 
uh, I don't know if this is, this is, I think it's cynical to say this. I think they're positioned in, in a way that, um, positioned to kind of support the case for some new compound, I suspect. Well, uh, yeah. And, and I mean, and I think even some of the trials that we've seen that have, have been less successful and things are trying to make the points now that it's, it's not necessarily that the trials didn't work. It's that you've got to give the right drug to the right person at exactly the right time. And mm. you know, that personalized medicine uh, is the key factor here. It's not that there are bad drugs. They're just giving them to people at the wrong time. Yeah. Which is something they've made a few points. that's come up a few times over the last few days. Um, I'm going to very quickly draw attention to a few things that caught my eye. Uh, Karen Chastry from Toronto did a very interesting talk on creating tech for people with dementia and MCI, um, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, Jane Senior from Manchester. Um, oh, I wasn't sure if she was presenting Katrina Forsyth's work or if it was the other way around, but um, that was very interesting. That was about prison population. 16% of uh, people in prisons are older now, but yet prisons are designed for younger people. Um, and that if you uh, were an older person in prison, you were four times less likely to have a diagnosis of dementia compared to the general population outside of prison. Um, which did then get me thinking about, uh, you know, do they need some specific facilities for uh, older prisoners or actually is this more to do with looking at how we, how we disperse justice, um, you know, or do we create new facilities or, it's got me thinking about various things, but that's an interesting talk, Jane Senior from Manchester. Um, I love this one. So Gregory Day from the Mayo Clinic in Florida. Um, I'll cut straight to his highlight. They were looking at assessing the reliability of reported medical history in older adults compared to actual medical history. And this is something that is important because so much time and money and cost and not just uh, for for people performing trials, but for people who want to participate in them as well, is lost in screen failure. Screen failure is this, this thing that everybody wants to try and reduce also as well. It's an awful term, isn't it? Because people feel like they failed then if they don't, if they don't get randomized. Anyway, um, they checked the likelihood of uh, diabetes and stroke being accurately reported by people when they came to um, be tested. And um, one in four people who reported being diabetic weren't, and one in six people who reported not having a stroke had, which I thought was fascinating <laughs> stats. Um, I mean, would, and they would have been told they it wasn't that they'd had a stroke and not known about it. It was that, like they would have exactly they would have gone into. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, people that had no strokes way. didn't realise. One in six people. Mm. Um, said they hadn't had a stroke, but actually had. Um, and one in four people thought they were diabetic and weren't. It's kind of the same for diabetes, though, isn't it? Like they'll have been told that they had diabetes at some point and then might have gotten their um, their levels back to normal and now they don't have it, but they still think that they've got it because they've not been told probably that they don't. Um, that was a really interesting talk, though. You're right, Adam. It was. And I think the interesting thing about the diabetes, I mean, they did highlight that there are national screening programs for diabetes as well. Whether people go to the follow-ups is the key. Um, the main takeaway here was that uh, medical history should be objectively confirmed. 
Um, no surprises. I'm, I'm reached out to him because I'm quite interested. We have this in joint dementia research. I did a lot of screening for the bio with others for the, the one of the biogen studies. And one of the interesting things about that was how many people tended to actually. Um, we always thought that people would. Uh, let me get this the right way around. Under report their seriousness, but they tend. Uh, so if you say to somebody how how severe is uh, your symptoms, they would generally say that they're more severe than they actually are. And we thought it would be the other way around that people would underestimate and go, no, I'm, I'm fine. But actually they don't, uh, it's, it's completely re re reverse. Um, so back to that point about screening earlier, I'm quite interested to look at how real life screening data compared to what people reported in a register like joint dementia research to see if there are differences there and if we can start to predict what those might be to do better matching and, and better recruitment to trials. There's some potential in that. Uh, sorry, Reid, did you have anything to add on that Gregory Deer study? Uh, not really. He One of the things that they said for the stroke was that one of the independent factors that predicted an inaccurate um, reporting of having a stroke was the use of unrelated uh, collateral sources as well. So basically uh, people who weren't related to them may not know as much about them. But I, I spoke to Gregory Day about it as well and he said that they made sure to have the collateral sources and the patients in different rooms from each other so they couldn't influence each other's thinking. Yeah. And that was something I was interested in because in a lot of healthcare settings, often say a couple might go in and then they might be more biased in their answer so that they're not upsetting the other member of their couple. So they might say, you know, for example, you could ask them like, do you feel really depressed right now? And they might not want the other member to know. So they'll be like, no, I'm absolutely fine. And you won't get a really accurate report that way. Um, but they said that they keep them out for that reason. But it is a consideration then when you think about actual clinical practice, that that could be increasing inaccurate practice as well. Oh, that's that's interesting. We'll have to bear that in mind when we're looking at uh, new systems for enrolment trials and things. And and obviously, there's been a lot of talk about how trials have been affected by COVID over the last few days, and how we need to embrace technology to ensure that we can fill in the gaps and that data doesn't get lost. And being able to do perform exactly that, have that objectivity that you mentioned there, whilst using a new technology, might be something we have to think about somebody does um the other thing to highlight that uh, alzheimer's society alzheimer's society alzheimer's association highlighted yesterday was the sol inca study that found that apoe for the gene with the strongest impact on alzheimer's risk for white european descendant populations appears to be less accurate predictor of risk in populations from latin america um so please do have a look at that they've tweeted about it as well um i think that's the last of my notes. Whoa, we've probably run dreadfully over time, as usual. <laughs> uh, is there a, uh, you have, um, so before we kind of start to think about wrapping this up, have any of you, obviously, we, we've talked about one of your presentations. Have you been presenting other stuff this week? Um, I also presented a poster this week looking at a novel dual task, um, a dual task cognitive measure for gait to see if a specific type of dual task was better at discriminating Lewy body disease from Alzheimer's disease um, in comparison to usual gait where you just walk at your comfortable pace. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not usual gait seem to be the same, if not better. Um, 
than this particular dual task. So that was quite interesting, just kind of summing up some of the last bits of my PhD. Um, but the, the main one for me was the presentation looking at care homes versus um, community dwelling people with cognitive impairment. And that was in collaboration with University of Auckland and Auckland University of Technology as well. So it was really nice to get the opportunity to do that. I did see that. Were you angling for a nice little trip to New Zealand off the back of that? <laughs> no, not quite. Um, I am hopefully, if I if I get a fellowship, I would hopefully be working with Nairi Kurs, who's the professor on that study, um, and would do a, a small um, couple of trips to New Zealand to collaborate with her there. But um, they're collaborating with my PI, Professor Lynn Rochester, at the moment on the staying upright study. So I was fortunate enough to be allowed to look at some of the data that I thought matched well with my PhD data. Cool. Are you are you caught up in this awful um, suspension of funding rounds for fellowships right now? Are you are you caught up in the middle of that, or are you? Yeah, a little escaped? bit. I was I was hoping to apply for the Alzheimer's Society, um, but I don't think that they're going to go ahead this year. Um, I've applied for the Henry Welcome, so we'll we'll have to see how that goes, um, and then have a look again in January when then IHR open up. Oh, well, fingers crossed, and good luck for that. Um, uh, Byron, did you have yeah. anything? Are you presenting this week? Uh, I had a I had a poster about uh, using um, bioinformatic techniques to understand side effects of antipsychotics, um, and then yesterday uh, presented in a on in an on demand session, and then a Q and A later on. And the on demand session was organised by Clive Ballard and Howard Feldman, and it was about advancing clinical trials in the digital age, I think was the title. Uh, not of my presentation of the, of the session. And then I, I talked about um, a particular uh, tool called the Mild Behavioral Impairment Checklist, um, which we think might be a pretty quick and easy way to um, enrich samples for people at risk of dementia. So you might normally do a a an APOE test or, or a cognitive test, um, but both of those are, take a little bit of time. Uh, we've shown that online APOE screen, um, MBI, mild, mild behavioral impairment screening, um, can be done with a questionnaire, which takes about 10, 15 minutes probably to fill out. Um, and you get an idea of um, the level of new onsets psychological symptoms, which can sometimes, for some people, are the very, can be the very first manifestation of neurodegenerative disease even before kind of obvious cognition um, and so if you can do that quickly and at scale um, what we need there's more and more emerging data about links with MBI to kind of pet pathology changes genetics and so on so um, it, just linking back to what we were talking about about difficulties in screening it might be a quick and easy way to um, enrich samples for people that are more likely to progress further through, to, through screening Oh, thanks, Byron. Yep. Well, and, and if anybody's really interested in your work on MBI, of course, you did very kindly record a webinar with us uh, last month. And um, I did. It seemed I like believe years ago. That is available on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com mm. forward slash dementia researcher. Um, okay, let's let's think about wrapping up now then. So um, this is the last of our podcasts for the AIC. 2020. There is another day of the conference this starting shortly. We're recording this Friday morning. So there is another 
uh, set of sessions this afternoon, which include the ask sessions where I believe you can put your questions to senior, senior researchers, the various PIA sessions and educational workshops. Um, um, but I, I wanted to highlight, of course, that the, the way the conference is being delivered this year does mean that all the posters and presentations and the, the live sessions have been recorded and they'll be available via the platform for the next 30 days. However, I think you do have to be registered by, by today, the 31st of July, to, to be able to access those over the next 30, 30 days. So if you haven't already registered, quickly register now and then you can watch this at your leisure over the next 30 days or 60 days if you're an iStart member and iStart does have 50% off its membership right now. So do have a look at uh, joining iStart. Um, I, I believe also as well that the iStart has a whole range, the professional interest areas have a whole range of activities planned over the next two, three weeks um, with lots of webinars and on-demand sessions and Q&A sessions and things. So if you are a member of iStart, you can access that uh, content, which is some of which is very relevant for early career researchers in the next couple of weeks. Um, I particularly challenge you to go look at things that are outside of your comfort zone, given it's free. You've got 30 days or 60 days. Go browse through the content. Challenge yourself to look at something that's out of your, your own immediate sphere of interest and, and do encourage your colleagues maybe from other disease areas to go and have a look as well. We keep talking about the need to collaborate more with, with researchers in different disease areas. Um, so it'd be great if the way the conference has been delivered this year uh, enables some of that. I'm going to come back to everybody just final reflections on, on how we think the week's gone as our last one. We look back on the the format, the tech, the the layout. What? How did you find it, Esther? As your first, as your first AIC, you, of course, you don't know what a physical one's like. How did you find the platform? No, no, it did. It, it was good, like you said. It made it accessible from for myself. Um, and I thought, um, yeah, just just spare thought for the the IT people behind the scenes. I mean, I, I thought the the way they did the, their timings was pretty good. Uh, I think some speakers possibly could do with a bit of um, a workshop on how to speak less monotonous um so I think that's so. neurologists for you honestly if you've if you've Ooh. ever been to a neurology concert that one more hard to get through <laughs> <laughs> there was no uh stand neurologists in the audience <laughs> not many at least so um, neurologists that, hating me everywhere <laughs> that, that could improve i suppose but uh, yeah no other than that uh, lovely logistically uh, put together and uh, well done for their server keeping upright and all sorts thanks esther and thanks very much for joining us today what about what about you re yeah i really uh enjoyed the format i thought they did it really well um it was a lot to get through i think i felt a lot more pressure to watch a lot more stuff because Normally you kind of have to pick a session and stick to it. That wasn't really the case this year. So I definitely watched an awful lot of things and I felt very fatigued by the end of yesterday. Um, but I did really enjoy it. I think it's a good format. It's a really accessible format to people as well. I know they had like 21,000 people or something this year at it, which is insane. Um, I did miss the crack though from going to an actual uh, an actual AIC conference and having like a ridiculous um, opening ceremony with dancers and all sorts coming out so um, hopefully we'll be back next year for it. 
I agree. Actually, I think I came away feeling slightly less guilty because usually I'll often come away thinking, oh my God, I didn't see as much as I would, you know, it's so expensive to come here. You've traveled so far to do it. And then, you know, if you accidentally walk into the wrong room at the wrong time, you can end up sitting in there for two hours um, unless you get out and then run across the conference hall to find the, you know, the next place. I, so I've really enjoyed it in that respect. I, I do hope, I think it's amazing that they've done this for free, that they haven't still tried to charge people because they must have taken already by that point a lot. The early bird had been and gone. They had a lot of money in the bank. Um, the fact that they've continued to do this for free, I think is amazing and many of the other conferences later this year that i'm you know are still trying to charge full price should should take a long hard look at their models to provide this in this way um if they can afford to um so i think that's brilliant what about you uh byron uh yeah i think it's awesome they kept it online and great that it's free and i think going forward hopefully they can maintain some accessibility for people that have been able to attend that wouldn't be able to by keeping some of these features. Um, I personally find one of the most beneficial things of conferences, I end up talking to people and um, chatting about work and, and we get ideas. And I, I've been talking to Zainer Ishmael in Calgary every week, literally more or less every week for the last two years, because we met at AAIC and, uh, and loads of work has come out of that, for example. Um, and yeah, he's in Calgary, which is miles away. So, uh, so that sort of thing is really good. And I missed that. And it did take, this is a personal thing. It just took me a couple of days to get my head around it because I just couldn't, I was, I, all these emails come in about it and I just couldn't work it out. <laughs> but that's yeah. just me. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. I think if you are the kind of person who's pretty active on Twitter, I think yeah. that kind of Twitter complimented this quite well. And yeah, yeah, engaged. for sure. I'm not convinced that the chat, the chat rooms and chat functions were, uh, you know, I've had this experience though through the Dementia Researcher website, we, we killed our chat rooms off because they just, nobody used them. Yeah. And I'm not convinced that worked amazingly. I think it's hard but, if you've like already listened to a talk hours ago and then you go into the chat room and you're like, I've listened to like seven other talks now. I, I don't know what task yeah. you. So our chat, our chat, yeah, our Q&A yesterday was, so the on-demand sessions, I realize you can just view them any time, which is great because it doesn't matter so much that I missed two days almost of the conference. But um, we did a Q&A yesterday evening. And it was, I think it was pretty well attended. And actually, it was just, it was good. Yeah, it was mostly the presenters chatting with each other to talk about work we're going to do because we were from different places and that sort of thing. So that was, that was really good. I think I, I, I've left a few questions on posters and talks and not had replies. And then, of course, I can't necessarily remember which ones I did to go back and look to see if I've had a reply. And I don't seem to get any any notification or prompt that they've mm. replied to me. Yeah. So then unless I can remember and make good notes and go back and find it, that's the, the, the reply. Or I've, I have gone back and looked and there's been no there's been no reply. I asked a question yesterday about the ketones uh, ketones session about what participants were in that trial and you know 24 hours later there's no reply to that uh we'll have to see but honestly i think alzheimer's association congratulations on putting together an awesome conference with short yes. notice and i think if there's a way of making future conferences have a way to engage like this through an online platform as well as in a physical attendance i think that would make that would be great you could maybe charge a 
half price for people to engage online now and people know what to expect. And I'm pretty sure people would still pay. If you had a choice of $1,000 to go to it or $500 to participate online, I'm fairly sure you'd still get a lot of people who go for the online option. Do you agree? Maybe? Mm, yeah. $100 is a bit steep to pay for something online. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Might pay, some, pay something, I think, and maybe. But it's been, yeah, because, you know, if you can get, it's it's still, it's good to have an online component. Still I hope I they mean, find it's, it. it's good to have that offering because otherwise, you know, so it's prohibitively expensive if you don't have it built into a grant or some yeah. other funding. It's, it yeah. is. Uh, you know, and next year's AIC, which we hope will go ahead as a physical thing in Boston in July. I mean, it's when you add in the fact that you need a hotel for a week, you've got flights to the US for a week, you've got $1,000 mm. for the ticket. Um, it, it adds up, whereas a few hundred dollars to participate virtually, um, I think would be great. Well, thank you very much, um, uh, Esther, Byron, and Reef for joining us today. Um, as we said, Alzheimer's Association has got a whole load of content planned over the next couple of weeks, so please do take a look. Uh, please remember to like, subscribe, review our podcasts through wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we are going to have a couple of weeks off now because we've had a bit of a full-on two weeks of podcasts with the Relay ones last week and uh, AIC ones this week. We'll be back on the 10th of August with Megan Torville, uh, Sarah Carp. Uh, uh, Capinis and Tom Phillips from the University of Cardiff talking about mouse models in AD. If you're a new listener, please be sure to register on our website to get your Friday bulletins and lots of news uh, from our website. Thank you very much, everybody, and we'll look forward to seeing you at a podcast very soon, I hope. Brought to you by dementoresearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.